0: Uh, I'd like to read to you this morning from Jeremiah. And uh, from the message, here is what Jeremiah 2 sounds like. God's message came to me. It went like this. Get out in the streets and call to Jerusalem. God's message. I remember your youthful loyalty, our love as newlyweds. You stayed with me through the wilderness years, stuck with me through all the hard places. Israel was God's holy place, the pick of the crop. Anyone who laid a hand on her would soon wish he hadn't. God's decree. Hear God's decree, House of Jacob. Yes you, house of Israel, God's message. What did your ancestors find fault with me in me that they drifted so far from me? Took out took up with Sir Windbag and turned into windbags themselves. It never occurred to them to say, Where's God? The God who got us out of Egypt, who took care of us through thick and thin those rough and tumble wilderness years of parched deserts and death valleys, a land that no one who enters comes out of, a cruel, and hospitable land. I brought you to a garden land where you could eat lush fruit, but you barged in and polluted my land, trashed and defiled my dear land. The priests never thought to ask, where's God? The religion experts knew nothing of me. The rulers defied me. The prophets preached God bail and chased empty God dreams and silly God schemes. Because of all of this, I'm bringing charges against you. God's decree, charging you and your children and your grandchildren. Look around. Have you ever seen anything like this? Sail to the western islands and look. Travel to the Keter wilderness and look. Look closely. Has this ever happened before? That a nation has traded in its gods for gods that aren't even close to gods. But my people have traded my glory for empty God's dreams and silly God's schemes. Stand in shock, heavens, at what you see. Throw up your hands in disbelief. This can't be God's decree. My people have committed a compound sin. They've walked out on me, the fountain of fresh flowing waters, and then dug cisterns, cisterns that leak. Cisterns that aren't any better than sifs. That's a shocking passage, isn't it? So have you ever heard someone say one of these things to you? you? You may have to go back to teenage years to find it, but I think we should see other people. Anybody ever, don't put your hands up. It's not you, it's me. We can still be friends Right You ever been dumped How many Twice (laughs) Thank you Dave (laughs) Have you forgiven the persons You married her Well I, I was dumped by one as well I didn't dump you You dumped me Could you guys come and help us? (laughs) John and Wendy are counselors for this sort of thing. So uh, several years back, I was in our driveway in Brampton, and I had just picked up a new car. Um, It was was a sweet little car. It was a a G6 GT. And for one or two years, they made this ridiculous panoramic sunroof. It, It was like in three sections so the whole roof slid back and tucked away at the back of the car. And my neighbor, Jim, a great guy, came over and he said, you have, you have a new car. I said, yeah. And he looked at me and he said, I'm jealous. And it really took me back because I, I understood that what Jim meant was that he thought the car was really sweet. He had no ill will towards me not not at all he didn't want that car particularly he he just found that the word to use that explained what he was thinking was i'm jealous so the word jealous for most of us is a negative term right we when we begin to think about break up in relationships and Um, you know spurned boyfriends or dumped boyfriends the word jealousy comes into play and we imagine scenarios like uh, stalking where you have let someone off the hook in the relationship and yet that guy keeps on driving past your house keeps on watching you get involved with somebody else and the guy is still there the guy comes to your wedding And jealousy, you know, is is in play. We use the term. We, We begin to think about it. The Bible tells us, as we are given the Ten Commandments, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And it's not the only time we find this in Scripture. We find it many times in the Old Testament, several times in the New Testament. And we want, I think, to just sort of slide over a into the place of the J, and and we're quite content to say he's a zealous god, right? He's he's a god full of zeal, and some translations actually go that way, and they they have permission to do that. But strictly speaking, it's not about being zealous; it is being jealous that we're told about. And so we have the passage from Jeremiah where you have God. It's 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 almost you know a lament where God says, what has happened? What have I done that you have walked out on me? I remember the, the, the love, the fresh love that we had when we were newlyweds. And you, what what evil did you find in me? That you went out after gods that aren't really even gods. You went out after um, cisterns that you, you thought would bring refreshing to you, but they were empty. And you you f- forsook me the only source of real water and you went after things that are just like sieves the water can't even be contained so God is saying at the bottom line I'm jealous now we have to pull two dynamics out of this first of all God is not sinful in any way So in whatever way we pack jealousy with sinfulness, uh, whether we feel as though we've been hurt or wronged or we become hurtful and those who cause wrong, we can't ascribe any of that to God. So any of the jealousy that the Bible talks about when it brings God to us and says, this is a jealous God, is not packed at all with anything deficient or sinful. So however God is jealous, About us is perfectly fine is perfectly right and is perfectly in keeping with his character The second thing is that we have to understand that that God does not operate as a human does so we've used the term anthropomorphism a few times in the last few weeks because The only way we can begin to talk and understand about God um, Is often to compare God to human beings and so we we compare what he does to what we do as human beings. And we're we're obviously left, you know, having fallen short many times. But maybe we begin to grasp some things about God as we think about how they would be on the human level of things. But God is not human. He doesn't operate as a human. And so, again, however it is that God is jealous, is not sinful, and is not just a human attribute not a humanness about him the eternal creator the God of the heavens is jealous For his wife for his bride. He's jealous for his people He's jealous over his people and none of that jealousy is a deficient morality None of it is just a human soft-heartedness he is to the core A jealous God. So if he's jealous, and we are the reason that he may be jealous, we need to sort ourselves out and wonder what we might do or how we might be behaving that might cause God to be jealous. And however that will be, it'll be a lofty version of being jealous far more than we could even imagine in our human existence. But God is jealous. And in the Ten Commandments, we're told that he will, he will visit his jealousy on generations. So be careful how you behave towards him since he's a jealous God because he'll be watching and he'll be counting on how we live in a generation as to how that will then transfer to further generations. So it's a very sobering thought. Um, when we see on the human level um, how powerful jealousy can be, how, how strong an emotion and the kinds of actions that it can engender, wow, if God is jealous, and um, again, we're drawn into anthropomorphisms, but if, if we get some sense of the anguish, of the angst of his heart, when he really seems to be throwing his arms up in Jeremiah and saying, what did I do? I I was the perfect husband for you. Remember how it was? Remember when I did this? Remember when you were were in the desert and, and I led you? Remember all the good things we had? And now, what have I done? He sounds like a spurned lover. As he talks in a point of history to his two wives, really, Israel has gone one way, and sure enough, Jacob goes down the same path, and they both are, are f- false women to God in their relationship with him. So I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, and there are three things that I think we, we may be able to grasp out of all of this. Um, first of all, God is the right one. Um, so, you know, everybody who is in their teens or their 20s or their 30s. Everyone's looking for the right one. Who's the right guy? Who's the right girl for me? Um, It's a nonsensical question, actually. The better question is, how can I be the right guy for any girl or how can I be the right girl for any guy? Put it that way and you've got to... uh, Serious thing to think about. Otherwise, you mess up God's will infinitely. Because if one person makes the wrong choice, God's got up in heaven. He is. He goes, one more time. Now i got I got to juggle everything all over again. I've got to juggle generations all over again. Sylvie will not ever come into existence because the guy... Right. So it doesn't go that way. But at the same time, as as we play this game a little bit our relationship as the wife of Jehovah or the bride of Christ God is the right partner he is the right one and that's an important thing to settle that um, at night in the dark and when there are troubles and when there are worries and when the world goes the wrong way you, you don't want to be wondering whether or not God is the right one You want to have settled in your heart that God is the right one. He is the right one to be in relationship with, and we'll talk some more about that. The second thing um, that gives God the right to be jealous is that, and here we watch our our sensibilities carefully, God has paid the bride price. Um, So whether you are Israel or Jacob and you are the wife of Jehovah, or you are the church, and therefore the bride of Christ. God owns you. Now, again, very, very careful. on the, um, no, These days, no bride wants a father to give her away because she's not chatteled, so she doesn't want to be given away and all that kind of stuff. You can bless me, but you know, don't, don't be giving me away. And now we say that uh, we play out this analogy by saying, well, we are owned. By our husband or our bridegroom Well it's in the culture of the day And there, there are some beautiful aspects to the culture So young man wants to get married And he goes and talks to the father of his intended bride Do you know you can buy almost anything for wedding scenarios today You, you can pay for um, a proposal coach Honestly, you can't. You, you can go and find somebody who will show you how to propose. So, because now the proposal story looms large, right? That's, that's in, in the lore of the whole wedding culture. How did he propose? Where did he propose? And a lot of it is fun and, and really interesting. But I don't get that you're going to pay somebody else to propose to your fiancé, right? You should come up with that yourself. I, I once had a wedding, um, Annabeth knows it well, where the, um, the groom was not a very good singer, but the best man was a really good singer, and the bride was a good singer, and they, want, they, be, they wanted to sing their vows to each other. Well, if he had sung his vows to her, he would have emptied the church. So he convinced his best man to sing his vows for him. It's one of those, what were we thinking, Right? Because here's the bride, so she sings her vows, and it's lovely. I mean, people are they're in tears and tender and all that. And then um, Paul, the best man, sings Ken's vows. No, Ken's, Ken sings Paul's vows. And Ken sings them with a lovely just. But you, see, you watch people, and they're kind of looking back and forward between the best man and the groom. And it's sort of like, who's she marrying here? Because it really sounds like he loves her a lot, and yet he's the best man, right? So figure out what you're doing, know what the rules are, and and follow those rules. But when a young man wants to be married, he would go to the father of pride, and, and he would say, I want your daughter's hand in marriage the father would say well you can have her hand in marriage if and he will stipulate a bride price and say you have to pay me this many oxen and you know this much gold and so on the bridegroom goes away and tries to figure out whether or not he can come up with what the the bride's father has required and he comes back to the bride's father and says here i have i have gathered my wealth and i am now ready to pay um, for the hand of your daughter in marriage. So at that point, the the bridegroom uh, actually doesn't take his bride. He goes away, he goes back home. And for about a year, he builds an apartment for his bride. Um, and he, he puts his best work into it and all the resources that he has left. And then finally, after about a year, he comes back to the bride's house. She has her attendants and they're uh, stationed along the way and they call out. Here comes the bridegroom, and then he takes her, and they go back to his father's house, and there's a great wedding supper. Um, the price that was paid for the bride of Christ was an astonishing price, right? It was the blood of Jesus, and there is no um, more costly commodity anywhere in the world. There, there, there are no minerals, no... no um, Stones or gems um, there, there's, there's no amount of work That could be done it, It's just astonishing That, that it cost The lifeblood of Jesus For his bride to be purchased And so when, when we come across The notion that God is jealous There's some reason for this jealousy Right? First of all He is He is the only legitimate um, suitor. He's the only one that can reasonably come to people and say, I'm your God, I'm your creator. I decide that we will be in relationship together. He he is the right one. And he has paid an enormous price so that we can be owned by him. Now, the, the lovely thing about the bride price in that, Old culture is that, if something should happen to the bride or to the bridegroom, um, and he should die, then the bride price is kept for her um, as an insurance sort of a, a situation. So it's not quite as you know patriarchal and 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 controlling as as I've made it sound. That that money is for her. That wealth is for her. So that even if he's not there, she is cared for and and can count on that. God has paid the bride price, and God is faithful by covenant. Should God be jealous? Yes, because it could not enter his mind or heart to be unfaithful. It could not come into his mind or his heart. And all the more reason, then, that he throws his hands up and says, did you really do this? I would never, I would never be unfaithful to you. I will never be unfaithful to you because there's a covenant that that has been made between us and I don't break my covenant. The only time usually these days I use the word covenant is in a marriage ceremony and it's it's a strange word to a couple so it's good because they can hear it in kind of a fresh way. So I will say, you're about to place rings on each other's fingers. The sign of your covenant. And covenant is not a word that we use often. But covenant is a word that we use that signifies having decided in our hearts and in our souls to commit ourselves to one other person for the rest of our lives. That ring will speak to you and tell you, you made promises, you should keep them. And that promise that you've made is a promise for the rest of your life. It is a covenant between you, and the Old Testament has beautiful images of covenant. We have the covenant between David and Jonathan, and remember we looked at Mephibosheth the other week. And here is David in in his you know final state of having been established, and he wonders to himself, "Is there anyone left of the house of Saul?" to whom I can show the Chesed of the Lord for the sake of Jonathan, for the sake of the covenant that I made with Mephibosheth's father. Well, there is, there's Mephibosheth, but he's way on the corner of the country. Bring Mephibosheth here. I will give him the wealth of the Saul dynasty. He will eat at my table because we had a covenant. You see... God made a covenant with Israel, and he, he never broke covenant. Israel did. So, so the reason we have a second story or a second chapter in the Bible and call it the new covenant, which is what testament means, um, is that there needed to be a new covenant made that wouldn't fail. So why did the first covenant fail? Why did Israel not find the ability to be a faithful wife well, God takes a hard look at that, and he says, well, the reason is that Israel had a hard heart, and so I'm going to have to fix that, and the new covenant that we have will be with a new heart, a heart of flesh, and, and my spirit will be in you. And so Jesus became the mediator of this new covenant, this, this new relationship that we would have, and it was one that was full of ability. So a marriage breaks down and, and you say, oh, irreconcilable differences. Or he he was, I knew right from the start it wasn't, wasn't going to work. He's he's not the marrying kind. Or I knew this wasn't going to last very long because she really shops a lot and he doesn't make this much, much money and I'm sure they're bankrupt by now. Stuff goes wrong because there's something wrong with one or the other partner or both. So Jesus said let's make a covenant between two parties that are fully able to live into it in faithfulness. So Jesus shows up, and he is the Father. He already has proven that he never breaks covenant. Never. Never is unfaithful. So he says, I would like you to be my bride, and I would like you to be able to live up to the covenant that I invite you into. Are you ready for that? And we say, we are, but we're a little hesitant because we're not sure we're able. And Jesus, with the promises of his teaching, says, yes, you are. I I promise you that at the core of your being, being faithful to me is what you want. Being faithful to me is what will make you happy. Being faithful to me is what will bring purpose into your life. You can live up to the covenant that we make together. And it's a covenant of blood, a covenant of my blood, and a covenant that is made real by the Holy Spirit who has come to live in you. second thing is that we have some suitors that are coming along and saying, are you sure you want to be with him? because it's a little more interesting over here. Or are you going home to your wife? Or do you want to go out for a drink? Just just a drink, nothing more than that. That stuff is buzzing around in our society. And as I think about it, what what are the suitors? I mean, what, what is presenting itself that would draw my heart away from being in a faithful covenant with the Lord Jesus? Um, not many of us, I think, have idols at home that we're bowing down to. So, you know, we're kind of left empty. We go back to the old covenant and try to find out how did they um, provoke God's jealousy while they worship other idols. And you go, well, I'm good. So what? What is it? Or what are the, the idols? I mean, we're smart enough to know that there are other things that are calling to us that are, Wanting to be idols in our lives. But there are three that I think about that, that, that I think um, we, we might just pass by without being careful over. The first is being religionless. So God is the one. Uh, the fool says in his heart, there's no God. So there is a God. There is one God. He is the creator and sustainer of everything that there is. We live in a day when people will basically choose none of the above if they're selecting their faith, practice, or persuasion. Um, If anything, Christian or Buddhist or Hindu, whatever. (coughs) But the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, are replete among millennials. The most common thing that a millennial will say is uh, about religious or spiritual or faith affiliation, none. N slash A, not applicable, or none given. Well, there is a God. And it's, it's crazy that that's where our conversations need to start, whether it's at Starbucks or at work or whatever it's there is a god like you you're talking um as though you don't know and agnostic is is actually a very honest thing I don't know when you say atheist you say Are you sure and and I like to ask well which god don't you believe in cuz cuz that brings some conversation Um, but but we are inclined towards dispensing with religion religion has done enough harm so let's just have done with it church has done evil so let's get let's get rid of that I'm, i'm not going back i went when i was a kid had to maybe i kept going to youth group it was good then maybe i still go every now and then but there's just a dip. Uh, and it's as though we're choosing to be religionless. The, the you, it's too hard to know what to believe, so, so don't worry about it. Don't believe anything. The second thing is that um, we could easily become humanists or secularists. And, um, you know, the progress of of science and technology... It's really impressive. So we could become, um, you know, evolutionary um, sociologists, psychologists, and and we could, you know, fill our shelves with Jordan Peterson. I, I really like his stuff, but he is. He walked, he walked away from is there a God sort of thing towards evolution and progress and, and all the rest as an, as an intelligent person. And his arguments are strong arguments, but they're they arguments that need to be faced with, yeah, but there is a God. <laughs> you know, so that model might work in quite an interesting way, except if God is there and you're, you're making your plans and God is laughing, right? That's, we hear that these days. That's a contender. That's a suitor who, for many people, would like to say, hey, uh, you're, you're a smart person. You're a thinking person. You, you ask questions about, about God. I have an answer for you. I, I have an answer that makes sense. Here is what happens when we become the best of us, the best version of us. Here's what our humanness can lead us to. Here's what our innovation can lead us to. And in the heat of a conversation, you might say, but, but, with all of that, where we end up, we are human selves, is in a dilemma about morality, about ethics, about the very technology. Because you, you can show me all the ways that we have progressed, But you can't help me answer the really hard questions about should we or not? Yeah, we could. But should we? And that's a religious question. It's it's not a a question of, um, you know, the great exercise of a human brain with the various options all sorted through. It's a religious question. Should we? And it will, it will, it is on our plates, and it will be on our plates in many, many more ways. I think. The third thing, and it's kind of a cop-out suitor, that just basically says, I, "I'm, yeah, I'm pretty open, open-minded. I'm not an atheist. I think there probably is a God. Um, I think if there is a God, I'd like to believe it's a really good." Kind of a creature, and um, would would have the best in mind. And at the end of the day, I I'd like to think he's probably the kind of per- person that says, "Well, welcome, welcome here, you're you're good." I'm really open-minded, so there's an open-mindedness towards all kinds of approaches these days. So, in in some ways, it's good we've become less boneheaded as Christians. Evangelicals, or so right. So we're not quite as camped into the different camps. We're, we're we're fairly broad. That's a good thing. But but I think what we lost with that is the the kind of the tenaciousness of thinking hard about things and asking: Is this true or not? Is this right or not? and engaging one another with that. So we're becoming very open-minded in good ways, but we all are becoming so open-minded that that's not so good because God's jealous. And that, that is, it's an echo that as we think about all of these things, it just comes back and says, God is a jealous God. I mean, jealousy is a strong emotion. God is feeling jealous about us. If we, if we're answering the phone, texting back, emailing back some suitor who is, you know, messing with our heads and saying, "Why don't, why, don't you, why don't you and I just go hang out a little while?" Just say just say to God that it's it's not him it's you you know it's it's you, you you've just got to work some things out, um, and you can still be friends that that's all fine um, God's jealous, I mean he was so jealous over the first covenant people that he brought judgment against them now he's jealous over us, so we we should be true to him we we should know that he's the one. And if he is the one, um, we need to work out our faithfulness and, and and our gratitude for what he has done to bring us into this relationship with him. Um, every now and then you see a husband and wife or a wife and a husband and you see one of them who, who really is doting on the other one, is just overwhelmed. that. That she's his wife, or he's her husband. Like, Who would have thought? Um, even people nearby might say, how did she get to be with him? Right? That's, that's about us. Who are we that we should be the bride of Christ? That he should give his life for us. That he should go to heaven and say, I am building a place for us. You won't believe it. It's better than Ian Middleton's work. Wait till you get there. Wait till you see what I have ready for you. Somebody else making a phone call or sending a message? You've got to say no. You've got to be sure that God is the one, that that price has been paid because he loves you dearly, and that he will be faithful. No question. There's nothing you could do that would cause God not to be faithful to you or to the covenant. You you can't do anything to make him more faithful or less faithful because it's a covenant that he has enacted. And so he says, I- I'm good. I'm going to be with you, there for you, as your covenant partner. Have you thought about God being a jealous God and what that means? Or... I ha- hadn't really. It's a, it's a strange thought. But it, it, it is something that, that consumes God's personality. Um, and when, when he sees us not being faithful in, in a human spin, it's like he's saying, really? After what I've done and I'm still doing, I'm just really surprised that your heart's cold. Um, That you're wondering about whether there's a better relationship for you than this, a truer relationship for you than this, because it's me. It it is me. Open-minded, yes. Um, Acknowledging other faiths and other philosophies and ways, yes. Yes. But pushing back with strength and say, but I don't think you're right. I don't think you're right. I I think I have met the true God and am following him. And I want to be faithful to him more than anything else. I want to be faithful to him. No matter who comes knocking, no matter who drives past my house. um, God's faithful to me. Jesus is faithful to me. Why would I do anything other than be faithful to him. Why don't we pray? Father, we pray that you would help us in the simplicity of our minds to somehow grasp that you are jealous over us. And that that jealousy is good. It's a godly jealousy. Um, But it's an important jealousy for us to pay attention to And it should bring us to a a place of rigorous faithfulness to the relationship that we have with the Lord Jesus. So may we be the partner as the bride of Christ uh, that respects and honors the faithfulness of our bridegroom in Jesus' name.